This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. In 2016, the Chinese artists Sun Yuan and Peng Yu opened an installation at the Guggenheim in New York. It consisted of an industrial robot arm programmed to collect and try to contain its own hydraulic fluid as it leaked out onto the museum floor. If too much liquid escaped, the robot would cease to function. The artists gave the machine the capability to dance for spectators. It could scratch an itch, bow and shake and ass shake. And early on in its time at the museum, it was able to do just that. But as time went by, and more of the viscous deep red liquid that it depended on bled out onto the museum floor, the robot had less and less energy. Its final days in 2019 were described as a desperate, never-ending cycle between sustaining life and bleeding out. And people got really upset. A Facebook page called The Nihilist of All Things said, No piece of art has ever emotionally affected me the way this robot arm piece has. Sun Yuan and Peng Yu had created the artwork as a comment on how humans kill ourselves with work in a system that's set up to make us fail. They called their artwork, Can't Help Myself. But it turns out the people were just really sorry for the robot. And that's what we're talking about today. Should we think of robots in these emotional terms and project our human identities onto them? They're becoming more and more part of our working lives, the medical world, and soon our personal and home lives too. So are we wrong to think of them as versions of people, or do we have an ethical responsibility towards robots? Joining me today is Dr. Kate Darling, a research specialist at MIT Media Lab and the author of The New Breed, a brilliant book which looks at how we should relate to robots and how we are relating to them. Hello, Kate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I hadn't encountered the Can't Help Myself artwork before this, but I did get really teary when we read the last tweets from the Mars rover Opportunity. My battery is low and it's getting dark. My my lips started wobbling when I read those uh, communications. Am I an example of all that's wrong with the way the humans look at robots? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for one thing, you're not alone. It turns out that people tend to treat robots like they're alive, even though we know perfectly well that they're just machines. And we see that particularly when people empathize with them, Um, even though we know that the robots can't feel anything, people feel for them. Even something like the Mars rover, which you have never personally met or encountered, it's these stories of these robots that we relate to because we project ourselves onto them and project human emotion and behavior and qualities onto them. And it really tugs at our heartstrings. So it's a common phenomenon. And whether it's a good or a bad thing really depends on how we think about it, how we frame it. I think it's because I saw Silent Running at an early age and yet the brave little robots, Huey, Dewey and Louie, it's like the Mars robot is just like them. It's so brave and it's on its own. You do point out in the book that children with autism and in fact older patients suffering from dementia often relate more easily to educational and home care robots that don't look human. Why is that? Why do we find the R2-D2s and the Huey, Dewey and Louis more kind of emotionally attractive or engaging? So that's that's absolutely correct. There's a concept called the uncanny valley that hypothesizes that 
the more similar a robot or an artifact gets to us or to something that we very easily can compare it to, the more it throws off kind of our suspension of disbelief and it throws off the kind of the illusion if it makes a small mistake and it it defies our expectations. And so something that we're less familiar with, uh, perhaps an animal that no one has ever held before, like a baby harp seal, or even just an abstract shape that mimics emotion and, and gives off cues that people recognize, but doesn't resemble something that they intimately know, that is able to really capture people's fantasy and emotion. And and we see that also in animation, like Pixar movies are really great at taking emotion and putting it into objects that aren't too similar to humans. But the broader picture, uh, and the reason that I wrote this book is because I think we really need to stop comparing robots to humans and artificial intelligence to human intelligence. It makes a lot of sense that we do this because we project ourselves onto them. But I think that using the analogy of animals is a much better place to start if we're thinking about these non-humans that we're integrating into, into our society and thinking about how we've historically related to other non-humans that we've domesticated for work and weaponry and companionship. And we've had emotional relationships with animals as well, but they're not like our human relationships. And so that was the impetus for writing this book in the first place. And you do describe how stupendously callous the human beings have been towards animals in most of our history and continuing to do it right now. And that we certainly didn't approach farm animals, cats, dogs, and so forth with the same kind of emotional engagement we currently seem to extend to a robot with big artificial eyes that looks kind of cute. It is true. And in fact, I think we've treated most animals like tools and products. And then there's some animals with the, usually the ones with the big eyes that we relate to that we have treated with more kindness. Um, even in, in, if you look at the history of Western animal rights, we've always protected the animals that are either cute or that we relate to culturally or that we can relate to in some other way, like the whales. Once we learned that the whales can sing, the Save the Whales movement took off. And so I, I think it's more just kind of this hypocrisy that we think we care about what's inherent to other creatures and beings and our actual relationships to them show that we gravitate towards those that we relate to the most. And I think that's also true for robots because yes, we we can design robots to look very cute and be very appealing to people, but we're also seeing as robots move into more shared spaces, some of the design mistakes that people are making and some of the robots that people actually don't like and actually become afraid of in a way that the designers didn't even anticipate. So there's there's a robot in my grocery store, for example, that everyone hates. <laughs> and uh, they think it's watching them because it's six foot tall and it ha- they put these googly eyes on it and named it. And, and everyone's like, why is it watching me? Even though that's not what the robot does at all. So I think that there's a lot that we can do with design and a lot that we can look at in our history of what animals we've related to and why uh, that kind of explains how we default to relating to non-humans. We've only just missed the 100th uh, anniversary of the word robot, which was coined in 1920 in the famous Rossum's Universal Robots drama by uh, Carol Capek. How ubiquitous are robots going to become in our lifetimes realistically? Because, I mean, you know, it's the year 2022. I mean, Blade Runner was set in 2017. We're kind of running behind on the artificial humanity and robot thing as gamed out in science fiction, aren't we? 
Oh, yeah, well, it's true. And and science fiction loves to create robots that are more, uh, you know, far future scenario robots that kind of look and act just like humans would. And this comes again from our tendency to project ourselves onto the robots. So we're not anywhere close to having the robots that we see in science fiction, in most science fiction. Uh, but we have had robots in our world for quite some time now. They've been mostly behind the scenes in the factories, building cars for us in manufacturing and helping with various things like that. And what's happening right now all over the world is something that really excites me, which is that we're gradually starting to see robots come into workplaces and households and public areas. So a lot of people have a robot vacuum cleaner at home now, and that's just the very beginning of what I view as the era of human-robot interaction, which uh, I think is just going to be so interesting, again, as we look at the designers of robots making these rookie mistakes as they put robots out into the world. They've worked so hard on the engineering to get the robot to function properly. And then people will either, you know, relate to it and name it and feel bad for it when it gets stuck somewhere and want to get the same robot back from the repair shop when it gets broken, or they, they're totally freaked out by it and they dislike it. Like, there are some security robots that people are very afraid of. People tend to not like drones very much. And it's all about the design. So we're living in this really interesting era as we try to work out those kinks. And I think we're going to see more and more interaction between humans and robots and more and more of this emotional connection when the design is um, appropriate to that. One thing that is very amusing about the book is you, you do say, for God's sake, please stop thinking about killer robots and Terminators and stop illustrating your newspaper features with a picture of a Terminator every time a robot is, is mentioned. Why are we so hung up on the killer robot paradigm, the idea that they're going to replace us? They're, they, you know, either there'll be the Skynet uprising or they'll take all the jobs and we'll be reduced to this kind of empty leisure life. Why are we so hung up on the threat of the robot? Well, I mean, for one thing, it's it's important to point out that we tend to be hung up on that in the West, but there are other cultures that aren't hung up on that at all and have more positive utopian narratives in their stories about robots. Like in Japan, their robot hero is Astro Boy, and they tend to not fear the robot apocalypse as much as we do. So it is a cultural thing, but I do think it has a lot to do with, again, this projection of ourselves onto robots, this comparison of robots to humans, this idea that once the robots are sufficiently intelligent, that they're going to rise up against their creators. This is such a persistent and recurring narrative in all of our science fiction. And it's the one that I really, really want people to come away from. Because I see lots of problems with integrating robots into our society, but those problems don't have to do with the robots rising up against us or becoming too smart. And I think that, again, this comparison to animals using animals as this supplemental skill set and this supplemental intelligence that's not like ours, but that can actually be useful if we partner with it and design it in the right way. I think that helps reframe and get rid of some of this moral panic so that we can focus on some of the real issues and some of the benefits of this technology as we integrate it. Do you think that the kind of recurrent theme of the robot rebellion is a product of our anthropomorphism because we imagine ourselves in that position. We imagine ourselves in a slave position. I think, well, I'd want to rebel. We now, for instance, see Frankenstein as a, almost as a story of, of liberation. And increasingly, the kind of the robot uprising story in science fiction is told from the point of view of the oppressed robots. Absolutely. Yes, I think that it, it absolutely has to do with 
us projecting ourselves and our own history and feelings onto these robots. And people have hypothesized, you know, I, I don't have any evidence for this. There's no scientific data really on this, but people have different hypotheses for why some cultures fear robots and some cultures don't. One piece I saw was comparing the history of slavery and saying that, you know, Western society has much more of a history of industrialized slavery. And so that's why we fear robot uprisings in a way that other countries that don't have that history don't. Other people compare the religious backgrounds of different countries and say, you know, in countries that make a, uh, or in cultures that make a distinction between something that's alive and something that's not alive and give the thing that's alive a soul, then of course we, we fear the thing that doesn't have a soul but seems alive to us. Whereas in other cultures where there's more of a history of animism or viewing everything as kind of having a soul, um, even objects and even the air, there's less of this fear or, or distinction. And it is really funny to watch kind of in our, in our Western societies, because we know robots aren't alive and we, we know that they don't experience the world at all in ways that, you know, we can relate to. And yet we subconsciously treat them like living things. And I think it's really confusing us at the moment. And I think it's going to be very interesting to watch these next you know, few decades develop as these machines that can sense and think and make autonomous decisions and learn come into our shared spaces and we interact with them more to see us have to grapple with that uh, moment of understanding that we treat them like living things, even though we know that they're not. Over time, we've gradually extended rights and a sense of value to organic animal companions, assistants, you know, or just wildlife in general. Will we in time do that with robots, robot rights? Well, I think that it's definitely be going to become a topic of conversation. And I think it's going to become a topic of conversation kind of in the same way that animal rights movements happened, which we're not really about a consistent philosophy or morality or ethics. It wasn't really about the animals actually feeling pain. If you look at the history of, at least in the West, the animal rights movement, they have a lot to do with these big waves of empathy for the animals that we relate to the most. We're already seeing, like you mentioned, that beautiful art piece, or you know, there are other videos online of robots being kicked or otherwise uh, treated violently, and people have strong emotional reactions to that. And so I think that that discomfort might actually at some point lead to a conversation of whether it could be desensitizing to people to behave violently towards very lifelike robotic objects. So like if you had a theme park with really realistic robots and you let people go into it and do whatever they wanted to them and behave violently towards them, is that something that is a healthy outlet for violent behavior? Or as someone once said to me, could that be training our cruelty muscles? And we, we don't really have an answer to that, but I think that might be the first type of conversation that might be about robot rights, not robot rights for the sake of the robots themselves, but for the sake of human behavior, which is incidentally how animal rights initially came about. And it's only very recently that we are starting to consider giving animals more rights for their own sakes and not just for the sakes of how humans behave. That is the topic and the theme of the fantastic TV series Westworld, isn't it? The remake, or the first two series were fantastic, at least. It kind of lost its way in series three. But the idea that if you enter a world populated entirely by robots, which by definition have no rights, then it doesn't matter if you torture, torment, or commit atrocities against them. And the, as the drama unfolds, we see that it is 
immensely corrosive to the humans who are doing this and that the robots kind of develop a kind of personhood and they are unquestionably the heroes of the story and yet it manages to interrogate the idea well can they be seen to have personhood when they are clearly not human I love that TV show, obviously. <laughs> it's so close to what I study. And I think they did a really good job. I do think that before we even get to the question of personhood or the question of what robots can feel or experience or whether they inherently deserve human rights, I think that that question of human corrosion is going to come up way sooner because because I don't think the robots are anywhere close to developing consciousness or feelings or anything that um, you know we would think inherently deserves some sort of rights. I mean, we know that animals are conscious and we still haven't really given them <laughs> proper rights either. So I think there's a long ways to go there. But I think that question of violent behavior and what it does to us as humans is an important one. And it's one that's unanswered. You run your own kind of robot cruelty experiment in the book, don't you, where you bring in a bunch of students and a cute little dinosaur robot and kind of escalate the behavior of the punishment behavior towards the robot to the point at which the students are instructed to like hit it with a hammer. And people really don't want to, do they? Oh, no, they didn't at all. That was that was a workshop that I did years ago with my colleague Hannes Gosselt, where yeah, we took these very cute, evocative baby dinosaur robots with big eyes, and we um, tried to get people to torture and kill them, as we called it. And uh, they they really did not like that at all. And that, that led to some later research that I did at MIT with my colleagues on um, the connection between human empathy and how we're willing to treat life like robots. It turns out that uh, there is a connection between people's natural tendencies for empathy and whether they're willing to mistreat something that uh, looks lifelike. So while that doesn't answer the questions that I have, I think it is an interesting first step to understanding that we treat these devices differently than other machines that we've had previously. Apart from the, the killer robot, the other machine that appears in popular reporting of robotics is, of course, the sex robot. That's the other one that tends to appear on the kind of as the picture in the reporting in, in, in popular press. You point out that an awful lot of assumptions go on in robotics, uh, that it is often based in the gender and the identity of the people building the robots. You, you describe a, a set of nurse robots, which are presented as quite sexualized and called Roxy and Lola. Is robotics so kind of obsessed with sex robots, perhaps because male nerds are overrepresented in robotics or in the customer base? Well, I, I do think that it is an issue that I have personally observed that, you know, if you have a bunch of people designing a technology and they all come from like one <laughs> slice of the population, then you're going to get you know, a very narrow set of uh, you know, technology that's developed. And I think sex robots are an example of that. I think that some of the you know, virtual assistants that I've seen are clearly designed to you know, be whatever the designer decided was an attractive female. I find that problematic, not only because it reinforces existing stereotypes and kind of entrenches them, but also because it's so unnecessary. Uh, you know, I, I, we know from animation research that you can create a virtual character that doesn't have to look anything like a human that's actually more compelling to people and probably a much wider uh, swath of the population than some sexy nurse character. So 
again, this is part of kind of the growing pains of developing these technologies and observing how the human-robot interaction works. And I think that we do need a lot more diversity in tech development, both in terms of who's developing the technology, but also in terms of the disciplines that we incorporate. Because what we're discovering is that this is no longer just for engineers. Engineers are great at making the technology work, but the way that people psychologically and socially and ethically relate to the robots in the real world requires other disciplines as well. And so I think that the field of human-robot interaction is going to become increasingly important. This is what was fascinating to me about both the films Ex Machina and Blade Runner 2049. They were heavily criticized for having sexualized artificial women in them, but the artificial women are made by tech bros in an exploitative environment and made by like guys who feel no compunction against just completely following their desires. And in fact, the android in Ex Machina is designed after one of the characters' porn viewing profiles. Like it was, I thought it was quite a clever satire or a, or an exp- exploration of the way the you know consumer demand and feedback in a world where everybody's desires and behaviours can be mapped is going to create human products that fit the preferences of a certain slice of the population. Oh, absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I think that film was actually brilliant commentary on that phenomenon. Um, and uh, I think what what's still lacking, though, in science fiction is the alternative, right? We, we are only seeing humanoid robots in science fiction and very few explorations of different types of design or what robots could look like if we were thinking more creatively or if it wasn't just, you know, a tech bro, uh, you know, determining what the robot looks like. Although probably the most loved fictional robot of all is R2-D2, who's effectively the most cumbersome USB driving creation. It's true. And yet he is probably the most loved of the lot. Absolutely. And I actually love that you bring up this example because it's one of my favorites. You know, you have R2-D2 and you have C-3PO. C-3PO is a humanoid and R2-D2 is arguably the preferred robot of the two, um, generally thought of as less annoying and more lovable. And yet R2-D2 doesn't look like anything special. He's just like this glorified trash can on wheels and he doesn't even speak. The robot makes beeps and boops and we love it. So it's just such a great example of how we can design robots with different form factors that are just as lovable and just as easy to understand and relate to as the humanoid form. And that way we don't have to get into stereotypes or or anything that I think is problematic about the humanoid design and people actually like the robot better. I've got one more question about sex robots and I promise not to ask you any more about sex robots, but there's a great <laughs> line in the book. You say, what keeps me awake at night is not that a sex robot will replace your partner, because this is the fear, isn't it? That people, mostly men, will want to just run off with a robot and not relate to humans, but that the company that makes the sex robot will exploit you. You're effectively buying a blackmail machine here because your sex robot is networked and what you say and how you behave go back into a database. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because that is something I don't see talked about very much. Yes, exactly. So I I think that what's so important and what I really try to illustrate in the book is that if we set aside some of this moral panic that we have around robots coming to replace us, then we can start to see some of the real issues that we're facing. And I think that some of these technologies are very emotionally persuasive and they're situated within a landscape of unbridled capitalism and not a lot of consumer protection agencies or laws that are really looking towards a future of this. And, uh, you know, I think that Things like 
in-app purchases in social robots or sex robots, like you mentioned, or um, the ways that robots might be able to uh, subtly change people's preferences and behaviors through social connection, I think is really under-researched and um, under-explored. And I, I do think that it's going to become a consumer protection issue. And then we have things like algorithmic bias and privacy and data security. So we have a slew of issues that I mentioned in the book, and I think we have an opportunity to start to address these issues if we can start focusing on what I believe are the real problems instead of this idea that the robots are coming for our jobs or coming to replace our sex partners. Do you find yourself experiencing strong emotional attachments to the robots in your own life? And you, you work with robots, so there are a lot of robots around. Do you miss them? Do you talk to them? Oh, yeah, I absolutely. So I have multiple um, versions of the baby dinosaur robot that I mentioned earlier that I'm very fond of. And it's funny because I work in a lab with social roboticists. They build robots, right? So, you know, when we're there and we're doing experiments, we tend to be very clinical, right? We're, we're researchers. We don't get emotional during the experiments. But the minute the experiment is over, um, I remember I got a baby harp seal robot called a PARO, which is this therapeutic medical device. And I brought it into the lab to, you know, to the people who build robots like this. And everyone was like, oh, it's so cute. Oh, look, it's doing X, Y, Z. So, you know, even researchers are not immune at all to this effect. And I don't think that it's going away anytime soon, because I think it's very innate that we want to respond to these Machines that give us us these cues that we that we recognize and want to socialize with. I'm uh, envisaging your house as being uh, like the guy in Blade Runner when he comes home and the robots go home again, home again. It's like just full of them. JP, you know, they <laughs> go with Methuselah syndrome. Kate, it's been fantastic talking to you. As a massive nerd, I am disappointed that it's 2022 and when the streets aren't filled with robots, I feel like we've been kind of swizzed on that one. But they're clearly coming. Thanks for talking to us. Um, maybe we should catch up on this in 10 years' time when things have developed. Great idea. Thank you so much for having me. The new breed is out now, so ask your house droid to order it for you. Don't forget to follow The Bunker to get our dailies and our weekly panel show, which is out every Tuesday. We'll see you soon. As a wise robot once said, we'll be back. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>